This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2020, one in about 45 people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the communities affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. Today, I'm doing a different kind of podcast. My co-producer, Jamal, had this idea that I do a podcast by myself. Basically, that I pick up story and talk about it. My initial reaction was no, not a chance. I could not imagine myself doing this. I'm used to discussing books and listening to the thoughts of other readers. And this is why I love book clubs. But then I thought, why not give it a try? And here we go. The short story I'm going to talk about is Chechnya by Anthony Mara. He later expanded it into a novel, A Constellation of Vital Phenomenon. I haven't read the novel, which is on my ever-growing list of books to read, and I really hope that I get to read it. I was introduced to this story by Laura Pegram, the editor-in-chief of Quayley Journal, when I took her class on the craft of short story writing. This is one of the stories she recommended to our students on the craft of writing, and after I read it, I understood why. The story draws you writing from the first sentence, and as the story develops, you know, you learn more about the characters, their desires, their hopes, their dreams. And the narrator does a great job of setting up the beginning that makes you get to that inevitable ending. It's also a great story for my project, which I'm exploring the question, can a fiction story or novel raise awareness? and motivate action by readers to, to do something about the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis. I think that raising awareness is clear, and I'll talk about how the story does that. I also do think that stories can motivate action if we can find a way to tap into them. You know, if you read a story and you empathize with the characters and want to do something, I think if we can just find a way to tap into that empathy and see how it can actually resolve into action, that could be a way to help us address the causes and uh, consequences of humanitarian crisis. If you asked me what Chechnya is about, I would say that it's a story of love, family, loss, guilt, survival, but I would also say it's a story of war or a story set against the background of war. The most recent conflict between Chechen and the Russian government took place in the 1990s and the story is set during this period. I'd like to start by reading the first few paragraphs of the story. After her sister Natasha died, Sonia began sleeping in the hospital. She returned home to wash her clothes a few days a month, but those days became fewer and fewer. No reason to return, no need to wash her clothes. She only wears hospital scrubs anyway. She works on a court in the trauma unit. She sleeps there intentionally in anticipation of the next critical patient. 
Some days, roused by the shuffle of footsteps, the cries of family members, she stands and the body takes her place on the court and she works on Riza station, knowing she's awake because she could dream nothing like this. A man is waiting here to see you, Hanan says. Sonia, still on the court, rubs the weariness from her eyes. About what? The nurse hesitates. He's right out here. A minute later, in the hallway, the man introduces himself. My name is Ahmed. He speaks Russian without an accent. But by now, Sonia feels more comfortable conversing in Chechen. A short beard descends from Ahmed's face. For a moment, she thinks he's a religious man, then remembers that most men have grown their beards out. Few have shaving cream, fewer have mirrors. The war has made the country's cheeks and chins devout. He gets just to a small girl, no older than eight, standing beside him. My wife and I cannot care for her, Ahmed says. You must take her. This isn't an orphanage. There are no orphanages. The request is not uncommon. The hospital receives humanitarian aid, has food and clean water. Most important, it tends to the injured regardless of ethnicity or military affiliation, making the hospital one of the few larger buildings left untargeted by either side in the war. Newly injured arrive each day, too many to care for. Sonia shakes her head, too many dying. She cannot be expected to care for the living as well. Her father was taken by the rebels on Saturday. On Sunday, the army came and took her mother. Sonia looks at the war calendar as if a date could make sense of the times. Today is Monday, she says. Ahmed glowers. Sonia often sees defiance from rebels and occasionally from soldiers, but rarely from civilians. I can't, she says, but her voice falters, her justification failing. I was a medical student before the war, Ahmed says, switching to Chechen. In my final year, I'll work here until a home is found for the girl. Sonia surveys the corridor, a handful of patients, no doctors, those with money with advanced degrees and a foresight to flee the country have done so. Parents decide which of their children they can afford to feed on which days. No one will take this girl, Sonia says. Then I'll keep working. Does she speak? Sonia looks to the girl. What's your name? Hava, Ahmed answers. In these paragraphs, the main characters in the story are introduced. We have Natasha, Sonia's sister, who is dead. We have Sonia, the only surgeon in the only remaining hospital. Um, she now lives um, in the hospital. There is the child, Hava, whose parents have been disappeared by the insurgents and the government soldiers. Then there is Ahmed, who wants to keep Hava safe. These paragraphs make me curious. I wonder why Ahmed brings the child to the hospital. Later in the story, I'll learn that they are also looking for her, and this is why Ahmed brings her to the hospital where he knows she will be safe. I wonder, will Sonia keep the child? 
how did Natasha die? And why is um, Sonia living in the hospital? But so many details are introduced about the setting, um, which, as I said earlier, it's um, the, the story set in the war. We see that men are forced to grow their beards because few have shaving cream or mirrors. The war has made their cheeks and chins devout. That daily simple act of shaving a beard with shaving cream in front of a mirror that you really don't think about, they can't do. We see that those with money with advanced degrees and the foresight to flee the country have done so. And this is very characteristic um, of war situations. Most people who can afford to live do so, and only those who can't are unable, or, and only those who can't or are unable to stay behind. Parents are choosing which children to feed on which days. You know, we know there isn't enough food for everyone. Again, very characteristic of war situations. You know, there is no food, there is no clean water, there is no toilets, there is no, you know, healthcare, hospitals. We see that the hospital receives humanitarian aid and has food and clean water. The hospital is also impartial. It tends to the injured regardless of their ethnicity or military affiliation, which makes it one of the few larger buildings left untargeted by either side in the war. And, and this is quite crucial. Impartiality is one of the humanitarian principles of aid. It means that humanitarian principle is provided on the basis of need and need alone. But hospitals are also protected by international humanitarian law. Unfortunately, today, in most war situations, we see that hospitals, health workers, you know, nurses, doctors, are targeted more and more by war parties. These details of the war continue to be captured and weaved in the story as it evolves. There is a scene where three women fight over a loaf of bread that they find lying on the street. One of the women slips through. She sprints and picks up the bread, uh, picks up the bread, and that triggers a landmine that was that is beneath it. She loses an arm and dies of blood loss on the way to the hospital. But the two other women still bring her in. There is a scene where Sonia, the surgeon, examines and talks to a dead man at that point in the story. You know, I really think she's losing it. She's actually tired, like very tired. She hasn't been sleeping for days and she's also taking pills. There is a scene that describes the bar, the bar with no dough. It has no liquor. Its owner was disappeared. There are no employees, but the regulars still return to it each afternoon. Their lips are blue from drinking windshield wiper fluid. Now look here, the city has no electricity. It has no plumbing. There is no food. There are no cars, but there is no shortage of windshield wiper fluid. And then there is a detail that illustrates the haves and have nots. When Sonia receives a carton of cigarettes from a warlord's wife, whose child she delivered, um, you know, she inhales, you know, she inhales the carbon. It sucks her capillaries. And in that moment, cancer is not a concern at all. 
But again, how can cancer be a concern in a war situation? The story is written in the past and present, and it's in the present that we see the conflict has permeated every single aspect of these characters' daily lives. But the narrator does a fantastic job of showing us their lives before the war. And this the narrator does when she uh, talks about their past lives. And I think in, in war, it's, it's always important to, 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 to remember that every person in a war situation had a life before that war destroyed. Before the war, Ahmed, for example, was in the last year of medical school. His wife was and is very sick. In fact, she has only a few weeks left. He used to spend Saturday afternoons playing chess with his neighbors, Ramazan and Doka. Doka is Hava's father. Ramazan had been a trader, a middleman carrying goods from the city to the mountains. The gratuities he awarded himself from every shipment is what used to provide their Saturday afternoons with luxuries, you know, got cheese and plum, plum wine that they otherwise could not afford. And they used to eat this got cheese and plum wine as they played chess in their hamlet uh, at the edge of the mountain. Then the war came and Ahmed stopped trusting his neighbor because now he is peddling information which had become a far more precious commodity. Now, if I think about Ramazan for a moment, this is a man uh, before the war, he's a trader. He's just about making money, right? The war comes and he still wants to make money. And the thing about war, of course, there are those who gain and there are those who lose. There are those who start new businesses. There are those who lose businesses. But I just stop and wonder, does he do this just for the money to be wealthy? Or does he also, or does he do it to actually protect himself? Because he's now giving information to both the army and the insurgents. And, um, you know, by giving them the information, you know, they keep him safe. As for Sonia, before the war, in fact, on the morning of December 11, 1994, that was the day that the Russian army crossed into Chechnya. Sonia was in her second year residency to become a surgeon at the London City College graduate dormitory. She called her sister Natasha that day. The next day, shelling severed the city, the city's central telephone server, and she was never able to reach her sister. So she decides to leave London, to leave her residency, to leave her Scottish fiancé, and the land that's unbroken by war. She leaves all of this to return to her sister. And in the present, she does ask herself why. But it's a question she dismisses immediately that she never allows herself to ponder because for her, blood is thicker than water, but guilty is thickest of all. At least this is what she tells herself. Her sacrifice, however, becomes more heartbreaking when she doesn't find her sister at home. She does everything she can. She meets with officers, both in the army and in the insurgency, she asks in Russian, in Chechen, where is, do you know, how can I? 
No one knows where Natasha is. Eventually, Natasha does return to Chechnya, but she's broken. The tension between the two sisters is immediate. Now, as they start to find their way back to each other, ironically, this is precipitated uh, by Sonia slapping her sister. On the day that Sonia slapped her sister, she had spent the day in surgery. Two children had been brought in after stepping on a landmine. They didn't have legs and they didn't survive the surgery. When Sonia gets home, Natasha's eyes are red. And so she asks her why she's crying. And she tells her she went for a walk and she saw Sulim in the street. Sulim is the man who actually trafficked uh, Natasha. I think they used to be friends or they used to be boyfriends and girlfriends before the war. Sulim looked at her and laughed at her. And Sonia slaps her across the face. And she's, Sonia is asking herself, how can her sister shed tears for the past? She does feel bad after slapping her sister. Sonia does feel bad. But, you know, she knows her sister would leave. And she really can't or won't pity the leaving. But the following day in the morning, there's an open wound by Natasha's eye. And she doesn't want it to get infected, so she takes her to the hospital to fix it. That's how Natasha ends up in the maternity ward, where she then connects with the babies. And from there on, she starts to go to the hospital with Sonia every day to help out. She starts to sleep less. And Sonia starts to believe her sister would learn to live in this world. But one day, a shell crashes into the hospital and kills her. How tragic. You know, how do you come back from something like this? It's then that I understand why Sonia is living in the hospital and the guilt that she carries that pecks away at her. Before the war, Natasha herself um, had completed secondary school. She'd found a job bagging groceries. She had a steady boyfriend. She spent Friday nights at the cinema or the dance club. She listened to Europop on the radio. She too had wanted to go to the West like her sister and actually apply to the same universities like her sister, but she didn't have her sister's superior test scores. She was very envious of her sister, but she counterfeited her envy by, her telling, by telling herself basically she was more beautiful, you know. No one ever turned to watch her sister as she walked down the street. But then the war came. The city was sieged, you know, landmines were planted, massacres in schools, in theatres. And what really remained was Natasha herself. She tried not to think of her sister, her ugly sister with her big brain. No one is, was paid per IQ point when buildings fell. So the war really had made everything for Natasha physical, you know, survival, retaliation, even comfort. But she knew that women who could make themselves attractive without the benefit of a mirror or running water could find a way out. And that's how Natasha ends up asking to be trafficked. I'd like to read a paragraph, one of the paragraphs that describes Natasha's experience when she was uh, trafficked. It felt like autumn, but maybe it was spring. 
She once saw ancient ruins, great stone pillars, walls without roofs. Days passed without distinction. Time was marked not by minutes, but by men. Eight one night, eleven the next. Each felt like a porcupine between her legs. Men from Rome, Naples and Palermo. Men from Scotland, Luxembourg and Germany. American men, Australian men. They called her Natasha and she didn't understand how they knew her name. Then another woman told her, that's what any girl from Eastern Europe is called. We are all Natasha's. An average day consisted of 10 men, three cheeseburgers, four glasses of tap water and two shots, a toothbrush, no toothpaste, weeks without tasting fresh air. The repatriated women have been right, modern day slavery, but there was nothing modern about it. The days passed, but they were all nights. The 15th floor of an apartment high rise, locked doors and windows, eight Natasha's in total, four bunk beds crammed into the bedroom, fucked on a king-sized bed, falling asleep on a lower bunk. One Natasha died, seven Natasha's left. A new Natasha arrived to fill the eighth bunk. They were all interchangeable, all replaceable and all disposable. The pimp was Russian, said his brother had lost his legs in the siege of Grozny, the belt around the bicep, the two taps on the syringe, the blood pulled into the barrel, the push of the plunger, the moment of peace, the threat of being beaten with electrical wires, the meals from Burger King and KFC, the slices of pizza, the junky dreams crowding into daylight. That is a very horrific scene. But despite the fact that there is war in Chechnya and the abuses that Natasha has experienced, her request for refugee status is denied. She was ethnic Russian. And even though she had never been north of the Chechen border, even though her land, uh, the land shelled by the Red Army belongs to her, she isn't the world's refugee. The only thing they are able to do for her is to provide her the treatment for hepatitis C. But after reading these scenes, and, and there's quite uh, a few scenes in the story where Natasha remembers the, you know, the journey into being trafficked, what she experienced is very harrowing, very haunting. You know, you, you understand... Oh, I understand why she is so broken by the time she, she comes back home. Every time I finish this story and put it down, I'm left thinking about these characters. I think about the impossible situations and choices they've been forced to make, their courage and resilience, the instincts for survival, they must survive the war. They must, you know, they must learn to live with the war. There is a moment in the story when Sonia tells Natasha to do something, go somewhere. And Natasha says, there is nothing to do, nowhere to go. Go for a walk then, Sonia says. There is a war going on, Natasha says. There has always been a war. That shouldn't get in the way of daily exercise. 
And that's the thing uh, about war. And some of these wars last for years and years. Some of them have been going on for decades. And, and in many ways, life can't stop. It has to go on. And everyone caught in a war situation has to learn to live and cope in these conflicts. But I also think about evil and the capacity of humans to be good. Ahmed is determined to keep Hava safe at the cost of his own life. He knows that either the insurgents or the army are going to come to get this child. And actually, I think there's two scenes in the story where Ramazan is actually tells, tells Ahmed, you know, he asks him, where is the child? I know you took the child, don't be stupid give up the child but he doesn't but he is prepared and he knows the day will come when they will come for him to take that child to prepare himself he steals morphine from the hospital and when they come for him he's already dressed he loads the syringe with the morphine and as his wife is asleep you know he disinfects her and pierces her skin and when the men break through the door Ahmed is on his knees. He prays for his wife that Allah may welcome her in paradise. He prays for Hava that she might live to have a natural death. Now, of course, when the men start beating him, uh, when they throw him into the back of the truck, then he really only prays for himself. But at least Hava is safe. And as the story ends, you know, there's a glimpse of hope for Sonia as well. You know, she finally leaves the hospital and goes home with Hava. They eat dinner before the sun goes down. You know, potatoes, they're boiled over the furnace. Later, Sonia shows Hava into Natasha's room and gets just to the bed and tells her this is where she will sleep. I put down the story and wish this story, Chechnya, was just really fiction and these things don't happen in real life it is fiction that's true but sadly it depicts what millions of people living in war situations go through every day this is a story that provides an in-depth account of what it is like to live in a war and how war shatters lives i mean you see how the that the lives of these characters, you know, Ahmed, Sonia, Natasha, and the child have a, how their lives are just destroyed. You know, they didn't do anything <laughs> to deserve this. They didn't do anything to, you know, for the war really just came to them. I am really glad that Jamal challenged me to do this because I have really enjoyed discussing this story. I hope that you have a chance to read it. It's a short story, about 20 pages long. It's actually available on narrative fiction online. Do read it, and if you do, um, share your thoughts with me. If you would like me to read a story or a book of your choice, send it to me, and I'll be happy to discuss it. Thank you so much for listening. You can get more information about me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana. That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A and my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye.
Special thanks to my co-producer Jamal Swift. Music by Nomadic Band and Epidemic Sounds. <laughs>